Photo Shelter presents Vision Slightly Blurred. I'm Alan Murabayashi. I want to take you back to the year 1986. I'm in seventh grade at the time. My home teacher is Ms. Honan in Bishop Hall at Punahou School, but every morning that I get to school, we actually go across the hall to go hang out in Mr. Hu's classroom. He's my science teacher and math teacher at the time. He was, uh, he was kind of an eclectic, funny guy, probably in his early to mid-30s at the time. Although, you know, when you're 12 or 13, uh, everyone seems old compared to you. What you have to realize about the 1980s is that space was still this fantastic, intriguing, hopeful destination for us. Star Wars, the first Star Wars movie had come out in 1977. The Star Trek movies followed shortly thereafter. By the time 1986 rolled around, we had already had the first trilogy of Star Wars movies. Uh, By 1986, we had already had three Star Trek movies, including my favorite, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. And as a kid growing up in this time, space to me was still this incredible uh, representation of hope and promise and uh, a world in which science and analytical reasoning dominated. And the space shuttle program, I remember when they started talking about it in the 70s, Uh, I had gone to the local drugstore, it was Long's Drugs uh, here in Honolulu, and uh, bought a model of a space shuttle. Um, So if you're of that era, you'll remember these plastic models that you could buy. Uh, You'd buy a little box that was sort of a maybe slightly smaller than a shoebox. You'd take all these plastic parts that were fused together and you'd snap them off. And using some epoxy, you'd glue them together with the paper instructions that were provided. And all of a sudden, you had a space shuttle on your desktop at, you know, one one-thousandth scale or whatever the, the scale was at the time. You had hinging doors that would open, you know, to the shuttle bay. And it was really, really cool. It really captured my imagination as a kid. And when the first shuttle actually launched in real life, I remember thinking, wow, look at this, a reusable spacecraft. Maybe the rockets themselves weren't reasonable, but the notion that you could launch a spacecraft on the back of a rocket and then have it descend back onto Earth like an airplane was mind-blowing at the time. And on a particular day, it was January 28th, 1986, I rolled into the classroom and the television was already on and the all the major uh, network television stations were talking about the Space Shuttle Challenger explosion. Now, if you are, say, mid-40s or older, this day, January 28th, 1986, will stick in your mind in the way that maybe the JFK assassination day or the 9-11 attack uh, sticks in the mind of other people. I remember this day. I remember seeing the, the footage And on this particular day, the 25th Space Shuttle mission, uh, the mission name was STS-51-L, the shuttle took off, and 73 seconds into the launch, it exploded. And after an extensive investigation, they determined that the O-rings that were sealing uh, the rocket were sort of insufficient, and... A hot gas had escaped 
from the rocket and ignited a fuel tank causing the space shuttle to explode. This was significant in a lot of ways. Uh, to the population at large, it was significant because we hadn't really seen uh, a tragedy on this scale in the space program in, in quite a while. Of course, astronauts uh, live in a precarious occupation. One in 20 of the astronauts that have made it into space have actually died uh, in the process of doing so. But uh, despite early setbacks in the Apollo programs in the 1960s, the space program in the United States had been relatively safe uh, up until this point. And on STS-51L, there were seven astronauts, including Ellison Onizuka, who was the first Hawaii-born astronaut and also the first Asian-American astronaut. And then also Krista McAuliffe, who would have been the first school teacher? She would have been the first school teacher into space. She had been selected, the single individual out of 11,000 applicants from the United States, vying to be the first teacher in space. And so this crew had boarded the space shuttle Challenger uh, with a lot of fanfare and a lot of expectations of science experiments and video that would be beamed back to the United States uh, and, and to the world at large about what this crew was doing. But they only made it 73 seconds into space before the explosion happened. On the ground that day was a photographer, Bruce Weaver, who worked at the time for the AP and then later moved over to AFP. He was uh, at the beginning of his career and ended up being one of these iconic space launch photographers. You know, there's a small crew of these guys at Cape Canaveral who seemingly shoot every space launch and know all the nuances about shooting uh, a space launch. So, you know, in some cases, they'll, depending on the distance from the, the launch pad, they'll have uh, protective housings for their camera gear. Um, if they're a little bit farther back, maybe they'll just have a plastic covering. They're using acoustic triggers uh, because you can't have a manually controlled trigger. Um, you can't have a timer because the, the launch window is variable depending on the weather. So they use an acoustic trigger to start causing the camera to, to fire frames. And remember in 1986, this is all film-based technology and so your role only has 36 exposures so you better make sure that every everyone counts but on that day bruce weaver is there with his camera and uh you know he gets his launch photos and then he's ostensibly tracking the space shuttle as it uh, ascends into the atmosphere 73 seconds in the space shuttle is only about forty-nine thousand feet in the air so not really that much higher than a commercial jet, although it ascends to that that altitude much, much more quickly than a commercial jet. But 73 seconds in, the shuttle explodes and Bruce takes an image where the fireball, if you will, is still is still apparent. But so is the contrails. So are the contrails that have emerged from the various pieces of uh, shuttle and booster rockets and whatever else is causing condensation to, to occur in this up, upper atmosphere. 
this image becomes the iconic image of the day. Now, NASA has always had video cameras trained on the, the space shuttle for archival and also for scientific analysis purposes. But, you know, back in the day, we're talking about a very low resolution image, even, you know, as stabilized as it is, it just doesn't have the, the detail that Bruce's image has from the day. Bruce's image ends up on the February 10th, 1986 cover of Time magazine. It's a much tighter crop of his image than, than the full frame image uh, would be. But this image becomes something that I think if you were alive at the time, you, you, you just remember seeing this. Because let me set the stage for news consumption at the time. In 1986, newspaper circulation was nearly at its peak. It, uh, newspaper circulation kind of peaked in the early 90s. So some 60 plus million people had newspaper subscriptions at the time. Uh, when you picked up your newspaper in the morning or at the end of the day, the image that appeared on the A1 on that first page above the fold was probably the most significant image that you saw all day. Because you didn't have smartphones, uh, you didn't have the internet, and so the newspaper was the main vehicle for uh, viewing news images on a day-to-day basis. And then even more important than that, arguably, were Time magazine and Newsweek magazine at the time. These were full-color, full-color, full-cover images uh, USA Today was around at the time with their signature color uh, homepage, but most dailies at the time were still printing in black and white. So to have this February 10th cover emerge uh, for time with Bruce Weaver's image of this explosion and this massive smoke billowing from it or contrails uh, emitting from this explosion, it was a big deal. The image that Time used, uh, as I mentioned before, pretty heavily cropped. Bruce's image was impeccable in a lot of ways, technically. He didn't overexpose at all. You know, when you're, when you're shooting an explosion, if you just use your normal exposure, you'll probably un- overexpose the image. But his, his uh, highlights were per- perfectly preserved. Uh, the image that he, he captured, uh, you know, I haven't seen the negative, so I don't know whether it's full frame, but, you know, at 49,000 feet with a 400 or 600 millimeter lens, you could, you could get a nice field of view. It's not so far away as to, you know, be minuscule in your frame. And he had what some people have said looks like a swan because of the way that the, the twisting of the contrails and the explosion looking like a swan body. It was a chaotic scene, a chaotic explosion with debris from the shuttle uh, kind of still hanging in the air and the billowing smoke and the jet contrails and the orange of the fire. The image was so iconic that the National Portrait Gallery uh, accepted the donation of the image of the print into their archives. And I think in a lot of ways, it represents the chaos of the day. Unlike the video feed, the image doesn't capture the moment of explosion. When you see these billowing piles of smoke coming out, you realize that it's occurred 
a few moments after the initial explosion. You can almost sense Weaver reacting to the explosion in recognition that something has gone terribly wrong. And because of the scale, the aftermath seemingly plays out in slow motion. You know, the way that the smoke is billowing and kind of slowly grows in size and you see the debris falling, what seems to be very slowly, but of, of course is, you know, reaching terminal velocity as it, as it enters back into the heavier atmosphere. Weaver's image perfectly captured a major inflection point for NASA, and I would argue for space travel in general. NASA ended up grounding the space shuttle program for almost three years, and there was a palpable sense that the heroic age of spaceflight had ended. That heroic moon landing, uh, right stuff era had ended. The image was just an explosion, you know, out of context. It's just, it's a big explosion. But it carried with it the baggage of hubris, bureaucracy, and of course the seven dead astronauts. Human tragedy, of course, doesn't impede human spirit, and the shuttle flights resumed in late 1988. And, you know, until the retiring of the program uh, in 2011, the space shuttle program continued to carry out significant missions that accomplished a ton of scientific uh, experiments and the launching of, you know, secret military satellites. But I think as a result of that 1986 explosion, there was a growing awareness on the part of the public about the real risks of space flight, which perhaps dampened the enthusiasm for launch photography. You know, there's always an interest in deep space photography. There's always been an interest in wide field uh, photography of things like the moon and the Milky Way. But I think for launch photography, the Challenger explosion took the wind out of the sails of it. And then, of course, a few years later, in 2003, the space shuttle Columbia, upon re-entry, disintegrated as a result of damage uh, to the wing from a piece of foam. And the disintegration of the space shuttle Columbia in 2003, I think, just ended up putting another nail in the coffin for what was considered an increasingly antiquated, expensive and dangerous shuttle technology that, you know, the, the inception started in the late 60s and the main technology came out of the 1970s. And, and here we were in 2003, 30-year-old technology, wondering why these things were so expensive and why they were exploding at an unacceptable rate. Dan Winters, uh, you know, he had a book that chronicled the last launch, entitled Last Launch, published in 2012, and, and even those images, as beautiful as they are and as great a photographer as he is, they just didn't capture the public's attention the way that Bruce Weaver's image did 26 years earlier. What can I say about this Bruce Weaver image? I will say that, you know, for me personally, it's just a reminder of maybe nadir is too strong a word, but of this low point in space travel and a low point for, for NASA, uh, which I think ended up taking decades to recover from. Which brings us kind of to the present day. Now, listen, I'm no Elon Musk fanboy, and you know, I think he's he's kind of a problematic figure in a lot of ways, but 
but I can't help but be impressed by the mastery that he has of combining the flair for theatrics with actually getting technical, complex technical things uh, solved in a lot of ways. You know, whether you're looking at Tesla or you're looking at SpaceX or some of his other ventures, both SpaceX and Jeff Bezos's Blue Origin have provided in the past two years alone these very viral YouTube-worthy moments with their self-landing rockets. I mean, you know, we've seen this in, in science fiction for years and years, but it seems so impressive to, to see it in real life and know that it's actually happening. And the flight paths that have allowed photographers like Jesse Watson out in California to capture these amazing launch uh, sequences... Um, where they're doing time lapse and you see you just see these incredible scenes uh, in blue hour or slightly after blue hour um, that have become viral hundreds of millions of people have seen these these videos well two days ago i'm on the internet actually three days ago i'm on the internet just kind of browsing around looking for stuff i'm a a big consumer of uh, news on the internet and i see that spacex is planning to detonate a rocket, one of their big Falcon 9 heavy rockets, in order to test a crew escape system. And the crew escape system is called Crew Dragon. So there's a capsule on top of this rocket. And this is what happened. They launched a Falcon 9 into the atmosphere, and at an altitude of 12 miles... The Crew Dragon capsule atop of this rocket separated from Falcon 9. The capsule continued to ascend to a max altitude of 27 miles. And when the detachment occurred, engineers deliberately cut power to the rocket. And the rocket started to fall back to Earth. And then they initiated a self-destruct sequence, which blew up the rocket. And, of course, there were photographers capturing this First was freelancer Joe Rimkus Jr., who was a longtime Miami Herald staff photographer, and he captured an image that was widely circulated by, by Reuters. Now, I want to compare this image to the Bruce Weaver image from the 80s. Bruce Weaver's image was this chaotic scene with all of these plumes of smoke emerging from this explosive cloud. And by contrast, Joe's image is this very controlled explosion. It almost just looks like an egg. The shape is like an egg shape. Um, And it also maybe looks like Phoenix emerging from the ashes, if you will. There's there's a brighter orange spot emerging from a darker cloud uh, of gas where the, the rocket had exploded. And it brings a sense of order. And you get the sense that This time around, everything is under control. Everything is under control. They had pretty heavy cloud cover that day. And so the cloud cover really mutes the color palette, turning the image into something almost painterly in appearance. And then separately, I saw another image. uh, A data analyst who works at uh, Universal Orlando, uh, who's also a space photography enthusiast named Michael Kane, captured a similar image just moments after the Rimkus image from a boat charter using a Nikon D500 with a 200 to 500 millimeter lens. And whereas Joe's image is more egg-shaped, 
Michael Caine's image is a few seconds after and it's extending off of the frame in a single direction. So in that very, very moment, the chaos of the Challenger swan shape is erased for this very orderly, directed, intentional explosion. The test ended up being a success. The Crew Dragon capsule descended back, parachutes deployed, fell into the ocean, they recovered it, no damage. And so they're ready to sort of carry on with human trials. What I'll say about these images, you know, whether you're looking at the 1986 images or these images from 2020, neither image really means much without context, without knowing the circumstances for why the explosion occurred in the first place. But the 34 years separating the Weaver Challenger image from Michael Caine's image or Joe Rimkus Jr.'s image of Falcon 9 represents this monumental shift, night and day shift. If Challenger is our loss of innocence, then Falcon 9 represents, to me, renewed hope. And that image made me feel that. PhotoShelter is the online leader for photography websites and workflow tools. Archive, distribute, and sell your photos in a mobile-friendly, responsive website. Try one free for 14 days at photoshelter.com slash podcast. Then download one of our free educational guides at photoshelter.com slash resources.